Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Paul Bloom. After joining us years ago to discuss Against Empathy, Professor Paul Bloom returns to the podcast to talk about his latest book, Psych. Based off of his widely popular Yale University course, the book takes students through the major topics covered in an intro to Psych course, laying the essential groundwork, including neuroscience and foundational theories, while providing them with the real-life context, for example, what psychology can tell us about our own biases and appetites that will engage and excite them as they explore the field of psychology. We spoke with Paul about the book, as well as his experiences with students while teaching the course. So joining us right now on our podcast, we have Professor Paul Bloom. Um, and Paul is the author of Psych. And Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me here. So you've written all over the field of psychology. Um, you and I spoke a few years ago about Against Empathy, um, and now you're writing the sort of the general overview, the Psych 101 book. Um, so I'm curious, even as you were writing those other books, did you did you sort of have this book in the back of your mind? Was this something that you wanted to do for a while now? The, the book, this current book, Psych, came from a different source. It came not from my other writings or research, but from my teaching. So for mm -hmm. the longest time, I taught an intro psych course at Yale. I'm now teaching at University of Toronto. I have an online course in Coursera that has about a million people have took it. And I want to turn it into a book. But um, I didn't want to write a textbook. There's not enough money in the world to get me to write a textbook or read a textbook. <laughs> they're, they're, they're terrible. Um, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book that covered the whole field of, of psych, give it this, covering the same material as my course, and much more exhaustively than you could do in a course, but at the same time, I hope, be interesting to read and funny and opinionated and anecdotal and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things reading it for me that really stood out, um, I've, I've always wanted to take a psych course. Um, I never got the chance to in college, unfortunately, but it was one of those regrets I had. Um, so I was very excited to dig into this. Um, and one of the things that made this so engaging and so much more interesting than just reading an intro textbook is that in addition to, you know, the facts that students need to know, you're making the real world connections and raising larger questions, things like how we categorize mental illness, how our bias, biases show up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so are these discussions that you're having with your students in class? Yeah, they are. And this is one of the perks of teaching psychology. You know, um, I'm sure there's a lot to be said about abstract mathematics or biochemistry or Dutch mm -hmm. history, but psychology more than anything else connects to real world questions. You know, um, do we, are we morally responsible for our acts? What's the cause of mental illness? Are we all racists? Um, how do we become happy? So, so you have these fundamental questions that, that guide that everybody's interested, not just students, not just scholars. And psychology bears in all of them. I mean, it doesn't answer all of them. In some ways, I try to be humble about, about what we know and what we don't know. But, but it connects to them. And, you know, everybody hears about psych. Everybody hears about the idea that we're all implicit racists, for instance. And in the book, I say, is, is, is that true? 
everybody learns about different treatments for depression and anxiety. Well, how well do they work? What causes depression and anxiety anyway? And, uh, you know, everybody knows about Freud. Do we tell them to take him seriously? What about Skinner? What about Piaget? So, yeah, uh, one of the perks of this field, I, I take no credit for this, it's just the good luck of being a psychologist, is that it connects to these everyday questions of considerable interest. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what you said about sort of this, you know, uncertainty and not having all the answers in a sec. Um, but another thing I wanted to point out is that as much as the field of psychology in your book does relate to a lot of these real world behaviors and actions that we have, um, one of the things that surprised me the most about, not even about your book in general, just more generally the field of psychology is that in addition to, you know, the nitty gritty psychology of it, there's also, you know, there's all the neuroscience that you devote quite a bit of time to in the beginning. There's the history of the different, you know, schools of thought and where all that comes from. It's It was more wide ranging than I thought it would be. Um, is that is that a reaction you get often? Yes, yeah, students are sometimes surprised by it, but I think you're you're right, which is, again, psychology, if somebody looked at the book and said, well, you know, you say it's a psych, it's psych called psych, but there's a lot here that's not psychology. I'd shrug and say, sure. I, I get into neuroscience, cognitive science. When I talk about language, I get into linguistics. When I talk about um, human interaction, I get into game theory. When I talk about human differences, we talk about behavioral genetics. A lot of philosophy pervades the book. And, you know, in some way to address these questions about the nature of the human mind, some of it isn't really, not all of it's done by psychologists, a lot of them by people from different fields. And this is yet another reason why it's interesting. In some way, I think a good psych course goes beyond psych and covers so much else. Mm-hmm. And so you, um, you're a research psychologist. So you do a lot of research, um, not only in psychology, but into these other fields, correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in developmental psychology. I'm interested in moral psychology, uh, our sense of right and wrong uh, for both children and adults. How do we judge things? What's the nature of uh, dehumanization and the desire to punish and gratitude and responsibility attributions? And so often I actually, I, I, I work with other psychologists, but I often collaborate with philosophers, for instance. I've collaborated with the philosopher Lori Paul on a project involving um are what decisions we make that are uncomfortable, what sort of things that we feel we don't want to go to the data before we want to decide ourselves. I've collaborated with philosopher Sean Nichols on questions of what do we do to enhance our personality and when do we feel awkward boasting about our accomplishments because people will think worse of us. So yeah, I, I tend to interact people from different disciplines. I've done it with anthropologists. I've done it sometimes with neuroscientists, but um, most often philosophers. Mm-hmm. And so, um... You being a research psychologist, it sounds pretty self-explanatory, but you you do mention in the book the distinction that you are a research psychologist and not a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, and I'm assuming this is um, something that people yeah that say people make often. So just for clarity's sake, could you explain what exactly yeah the distinction? Like sometimes is there? I, I used to. I used to describe myself as somebody, a stranger on a plane, asked me what I'm doing. I say, you know, I'm a psychologist. But then then they would say, oh, I bet you're analyzing me now. Or, mm. you know, oh, my kid. Let me tell you about my kid. Or I had this dream last night. And um, a friend of mine has a much better answer. She says, I'm a psychologist, but not the kind that helps anybody. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I so I'm a researcher. And this is most people who call themselves who are in psychology departments are researchers. A minority are therapists. I, I have, I, you know, I talk about therapy in my book. Uh, I think that's an absolutely central part 
of the field, figuring out the causes of mental illness and the treatments of mental illness. But, um, but so much of the book deals with the study of the mind and not how it breaks down, but the question of, uh, of how we develop, our sexualities, how we differ, our intelligence, our reasoning, our rationality, how we perceive the world, how we remember, questions that just don't have much to do with therapy, but have a lot to do with the sort of science of studying the mind. Mm -hmm. And so I want to jump back a little bit to how you'd mentioned earlier, how psychology, there is so much uncertainty in this field. Um, you talk about this in the book as well. There's there are conflicting theories. There are yeah. studies that have been done that have since been proven not valid. Um, you know, the results have kind of been muddied or, you know, they've manipulated it so that it comes out a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is a lot of uncertainty in the field. Um, so I'm curious, is this is this a result of the moment that we happen to be living in where, you know, we've made these advances and can look at these things more critically? Or is it just is this inevitably what happens when you try to pin down something as complex and intricate as the human mind? Will this uncertainty ever really not be there, in other words? Yeah, um, it's a good question. In in part, psychology is now going through a crisis of a sort. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of controversy as to whether to call it a crisis. A friend of mine chastised me and said, you should call it an opportunity. But it's, <laughs> it's a lot of our key studies have failed to replicate. Um, we have been, it turns out, people have made the point that we've been studying too narrow a population. So much of our research studies, people in the United States and Europe, so little of our research studies, people uh, in who are not part of the educated West. And um, we're trying to clean up our act in that way. And um, and so, so there are problems of that, so which are sort of problems of the moment. But then intrinsically, I think you could ask, why has physics made so much progress, which are giant textbooks in there, their rich understanding of the universe, and psychology has made such little progress, relatively speaking, and part of it, you could say physicists are smarter, but I actually think our problem is much harder. It so happens that given the way we're constituted, it's easier to make sense of the world of objects and forces than it is to make sense of the world of desires and beliefs and personalities and so on. I think this is in some way, it's not only the most interesting problem of all, it's also perhaps the hardest. And so uh, I think it's not like psychology will be finished in a hundred years or probably not even in a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, I like that you use the phrase when talking about physics, you know, the world around us. I think it's so ironic that we are able to figure out so many definitive answers about the world around us. And yet when it comes to the world within us, there are still all these questions. That's right. You, so there's nothing more obvious, nothing more um, undeniable than our own conscious experience. You know, Rene Descartes said, you could doubt there's a world around you, you could doubt you have a body, but you can't doubt that right now you're experiencing something, that you're thinking something. If I sl slam my hand in a car door, you know, I just know I'm in pain. The pain is, is as an immediate, nothing else does. It turns out that unraveling this, figuring out, for instance, how these feelings could come from a physical thing, a brain, turns out to be an incredibly hard problem. It, it often happens this way, that the most obvious and most intuitive turns out to be the hardest to figure out, and it's certainly true for psychology. Mm -hmm. And as, as much as, like you said, you know, you're so sure of your experience, I'm as much as I'm sure of my experience right now and what I'm feeling as I'm sitting here talking to you, I can never truly grasp what you're feeling in your brain like, like that. 
No, you're, 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 you're totally right. I mean, it's the problem. This is the problem of other minds where you know you're a person with feelings and desires and everything. Um, you can't be that sure about me. You can be skeptical right. about this. Maybe I make sounds and go, ooh, and ah, and, and, but I'm really like, like a zombie. I got nothing going on inside. And the question of how to discern what's conscious and what's not, what really feels pain as opposed to making noises, is a great problem. And it might seem like a philosophical problem, like this argue about it in a seminar. There's enormous practical implications. What animals can we feel comfortable eating? What animals could we feel comfortable causing pain to? Maybe the answer is none. Maybe the answer is some, but not others. Um, we're now living in the, in, in the rise of the, of, of the AIs. And, um, and sooner or later, everyone's gonna come to the problem as they get better and better and better saying, holy cow, is this a conscious being? Mm -hmm. Right now, we've already had some guy who lost his job at Google because he's are defending the rights of the AI he was working with. Um, and people laugh at him and say, that's too much. But it won't, may not be too much 10 years from now. And the question of determining what's conscious is, is just a really morally urgent one. Right. Like there was the, um, I think it was the New York Times just a few weeks ago had that, the chat with, um, yeah. I think it was Microsoft's AI. And it's, you know, reading it, it seems like, you know, it seems like you're, I mean, there are some things that feel very technically produced, but there are some things that feel like, you know, it makes you wonder, like, is there some sort of consciousness behind this? And, you know, it's, even though we so, you know, are pretty sure there's not, you can't really know for sure, you know? It, it was a transcript with a tech writer. And at one point, the AI seemed to get quite enamored with him, said, you don't love your wife. And they, what do you mean I love my wife? I just had a Valentine's Day dinner with him with her and she said no she thinks you're boring you think she's boring your marriage is a wreck and started taunting the guy saying you know you really love me and mm -hmm. it's like he's dealing with a psycho and now now you step back and say, it's just a statistical algorithm it's just it's just a mechanical machine but at some level you and me are, are just machines doing one thing or another so the mm -hmm. fact that it's a mechanistic device doesn't settle the issue ultimately we need to know is this thing conscious? The answer for, for I think, Sydney, it was called, is probably almost certainly no. Right. But at some point, now some people, this is a debate I get into my books, think that a mere computer that's not made of meat, that's not made out of neurons and glial cells and flesh, can never be conscious. Computation isn't sufficient. Other people disagree and think a sufficiently advanced computer could be as conscious as you and me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question and one that, you know, we can't, even though, as you said, it's, you know, probably not conscious. It's something that we, I can't for sure say it's not conscious any more than I can say that you for sure are conscious because I don't have that experience. That's right. And you might think that the field of psychology might help the field of psychology might determine what goes into being conscious. How does consciousness work? Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, consciousness is a mystery. And I, I agree it's a mystery. I think we have no real idea how physical things become conscious. But we actually know a lot about consciousness, surprisingly. We know about its limits. We know about its scope. We know how the brain acts when, when you're concentrating versus being distracted versus in a coma. We, um, we know people have different conscious experiences. You go from the extreme where people with synesthesia who will taste colors mm -hmm. or who visual images have a taste to them. There's, there's, there's the story of this Russian guy um, who couldn't read the newspaper while he's eating his breakfast because uh, the images, the words would interfere with the taste of his breakfast. Then you have on the other extreme, you have, I forget what they call this, but you have people who, who have no mental imagery at all. They can't, for, you have people who are like, they're 40 years old and they finally realize, oh my God, other people have pictures in their heads. I thought it was always mm -hmm. a metaphor. 
but no, really, they have pictures. They could really close their eyes and, and see something. I can't do that. And so we're learning that conscious experience differs from person to person. Some people have, have voices in their heads, like not schizophrenic voices, they just have a narrator. Others don't. Mm-hmm. That Some internal turn, monologue. Exactly, exactly. You know, I heard um, the philosopher Jerry Fodor was once at a conference, said he had a little voice in his head when he's working, say, go for it, Jerry, you can do it. <laughs> you know, people's, people's experiences differ. We study that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I feel I feel this is a topic I could go on about all day because I find it so interesting what we're talking about right now. Um, but I'm curious, um, what what topics do your students find particularly interesting when you're in in lecture with them? Everybody finds happiness interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, who couldn't, you know, you know, when if you preface a lecture saying, I'm going to tell you as best we know what um what makes us happy what makes people happy some answers are gonna be surprising to you you know you you listen people want to be happy everyone is interested in sex and sex differences um sexual desire how it varies across individuals what's what's universal what varies from culture to culture i think probably the issue that gets the students most excited is the question of human differences so some of us are introverted, some of us are extroverted, some of us do better at tests than others, some of us are more aggressive, some of us are gay, some of us are straight, some of us are, are bi, some of us are, are uh, uh, um, happy, some of us are sad. Why? And, um, and psychology, and here we get to behavioral genetics and other fields have answers to that. So we know, and maybe this is a surprise, maybe it isn't, that a substantial amount of this is due to our genes. If I know how extroverted your biological mother and your biological father are. I could predict reasonably well how extroverted you will be, even if they never raised you. Just like if I know how tall they are, I could predict how tall you would be, even if, you know. So, but that's obviously the genes are, say, half. But then there's the other half experience. And there's a lot of research suggesting that parenting doesn't play as much of a role as we thought in shaping us, but other life experiences do, like idiosyncratic life experiences. So students are find that, understandably enough, really interesting. I think, you know, psychology often promises to talk about universals, things that we all share. And that's my own research and that I find cool. But I think day-to-day people have want to know what makes me different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some students are taking your intro class as part of a major requirement, yeah. uh, while others are taking it as a one-off, maybe it's an elective, a humanities requirement, something like that. Um, regardless of the path they're going on, whether they're going to pursue psychology or not, what do you hope that students leave your class with? Yeah, um, I've thought about that a fair amount. And I actually try to do the class for students for whom will be their last psychology class. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so what I want them to take away from. I want them to appreciate some discoveries from psychology, some real content, some things we found, like uh, the brain is the source of mental life, like memory is a deeply uh, constructive process. You know, I want them, they might come into class thinking we sort of record the world like like our iPhones on video mode stored in our head and then people could pluck it back out. And I want them to convince them, no, everything we know suggests this is mistaken. Um, that when you remember something, it's a story you tell about the past as best you know. And it's, for instance, very easy to implant false memories into people, mm-hmm. given how memory works. Yeah, I actually, um, side note, I was talking with a friend the other day who he swore that, um, I forget what it was specifically, but that Google Maps had had some feature that he's like, no, I remember using this. And I'm like, no, that was just a meme. That that was never a thing. But he, I guess, had seen the meme and thought about it so much that he 
you know, had this false memory. And I was like, well, Paul Bloom talks about this in Psych. So I, I did bring that into my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I mean, it's worth <laughs> knowing. I think a lot of us picked this up from personal experience where, where I think everybody must have some sort of memory, well, memory itself might be untrustworthy, of a case where they, they really thought something happened one way. And then mm-hmm. sometimes they actually look at a literal videotape or they hear it from somebody else because it's totally, totally different. And it's personally shocking to see that, to think that your understanding of the world may be so wrong. So I want them to know some facts, some facts about our field. I want to know who Freud is, what he believed, who Skinner is. It's something an educated person should know. But more generally, I'd like them to come away with a sort of attitude towards the mind, um, where they see it as a sort of proper focus of scientific inquiry. They appreciate that a lot of the questions that come to them are the sort of things we could study, we could figure out. It's not like some mystical world. I was, I was talking to somebody, and then um, she said something like, you know, well, I was a premature baby. This is why I think I'm very clingy later on as an adult. And she said, but of course, we could never know if there's such a connection. And my response was, look, I don't know if that's true or false. But of course, we could know. Take 100 premature babies and 100 non-premature babies. See how they differ as adults. Well, maybe there's those sorts of problems with doing it that way, so do it a different way. But, you know, I, I think there may be some things that fall outside the scope of, of science and we really fall to philosophy and other things. But I think psychology has a lot of potential. And I guess the other thing is sort of, which, which I think is a nice sort of matching pair with this is a sense of humility. When, when, some, when you read some psychologists saying they figured out how to persuade people and what makes you, you and everything, just, you know, take it, take it, take it cautiously. We're a young science. We really don't know that much. You should be skeptical of what we found. Yeah, I think that's helpful to keep in mind, especially considering all the uncertainty we talked about in psychology. Um, So I do want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. Um, So last time you were on the podcast, we like to ask all of our guests who their favorite teacher was, which we've done. So now I want to ask you who your favorite psychologist is. Could be a figure um, from history, could be someone currently alive. I will I will leave it up to you. Well, so the, the honest answer and the easy answer for me is my wife. But but moving away from the personal. Um oh. <laughs> I would I would say because because you know, I would say um I go for um weirdly enough, I'd go for Sigmund Freud. Okay. And you may think that's something an obvious how Freud ask something name a psychologist like Freud. But Freud is despised by my colleagues, and sometimes for good reason. You know, the guy was in some ways in his personal life a monster. Mm-hmm. He was a liar, a cheat, a fraud. Um, he was vicious to his enemies and often to his friends. Um, so much of what he said was risable nonsense. You know, bizarre claims about people, um, claims that have not stood the test of time. And yet, yet, he was a fantastic writer. He was, by all accounts, a genius. Some of his ideas are just mind-blowing. And he got some very important things, like the importance of the unconscious, right? So um, I'll stick up for this uh, beleaguered figure and say Freud. All right. I, I I am a little surprised, given, because I, you know, you don't, exactly what you, the criticisms you had against him just now, you don't hold back about that in the book. So no, I, no. I was surprised to hear that, but I, th- I no. think that makes sense, given your explanation. Oh, thank you. Good, good. A little, a little shout out to Freud. Yeah. 
well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Uh, pleasure for me, too. I hope we get to do this again. Yeah, for sure. Great. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.